that to me was probably the thing that really shifted my career because that engagement and that conversation that we had after that, I left and I said, okay, I'm never going to um, ascend at the rate that I think I should. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Today's guest grew up in Brooklyn, studied business at Skidmore, paid her dues in business development and marketing, and then three years ago, decided to go for it. She co-founded her marketing, creative, and tech agency, Narrative, with Russell Simmons. And now she's worked with everyone from Steph Curry to Kevin Hart to Michael Strahan, which is such a great guy, on campaigns for brands like Under Armour, Pepsi, and Samsung. And now it comes full circle today because she started her career as a radio account executive. So I love that we're coming to you from a radio booth inside of ABC News. Trisha Clarkstone, welcome. Thanks for having me. You're right. It's so fitting. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> but I'm guessing as an account executive that you probably spent less time in the booth, in the studio, and more time pounding the pavement. But I did pound the pavement, but we wrote our own commercial. So sometimes, too, I would do the VOs. You grew up here in New York City. You are a twin, which I I like because my husband is a twin, and I know Ah. that whole special bond Mm -hmm. that you share. Tell me about that. What was that influence on your life? I think huge. Um, I call her my built-in. So you know you always have someone there that will champion you, but then also call you out when when they think you're not going down the right path. Um, I attribute, actually, a lot of my success to her. Because of that, because I know uh, I can share anything I want with her. There's no judgment, um, and and I know she'll always have my back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, too, I've adapted because I'm a twin and we're always twinning. I think of things in twos. So, um, you know, I'm always thinking of what's a 2.0 version of something or how do I square this? And I'd like to say it's because um, because of our, our twinity that we share. <laughs> Your twinity. I love that. Your mom also played a central role in developing you into who you are today. Mm-hmm. She, I think one cool thing she did because we're twins is she made sure that we never competed with each other. And I think we took a lot of that, that sensibility to us into the workplace and then in our friendships um, and then with colleagues. So we don't look at other women or people mm-hmm. as competition because I always joke and say I came into the world with kind of a badass chick. Uh, <laughs> so why, you know, why would anyone else threaten, threaten me um, in that way? But then my mom, she was a single parent, so she did a lot to make sure that we never wanted for anything. And I always remember, I used to think of her as like a Swiss Army knife. She would do whatever it took to get us what we needed, give us access to things, get us to ballet class. So um, I take a lot of that into now my professional career because I don't think I can't do something. I just think, okay, how can I get it done? You have to be a really resourceful person to get it done. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You graduated with a business degree. What path at that time were you on? Did you think you wanted eventually to venture out on your own? I didn't know that I would want to venture out on my own. First, I thought I was going to go to business school because my family, too, is very focused on education. And to them, a secondary degree is like key. And we grew up with our cousins um, all going to either business, law, or medical school. So my sister and I had kind of a high bar to, to follow. 
And uh, the thing is, when you apply for business school, everyone knows that they always say it works in your favor if you have at least a year to two years of work experience. So once I read that, I was like, let me use that line to kind of buy me (laughs) some time and see and really figure out what I want to do. All I knew is that I wanted to do something related to business, marketing, and advertising, but I didn't have a complete sense of what that career path would be. And then I knew I wanted to make an impact, and it wasn't just going to be like a nine-to-five type thing. So when you get this first job as a radio account executive, what's going through your mind? What are you doing great at the time? What do you still need to learn at the time? So have to learn a lot uh, because basically they just give you the phone book and and a desk and you have cold to, call yeah and you and I started cold calling so I did master uh, cold calling and really getting a sense of as I was going through and researching the different businesses and companies. Uh, because there's only so much time in a day, so I needed my probability to definitely be in my favor. So I would go after really specific types of businesses that I thought I could actually close and where I thought radio would deliver value. So I think quickly I got off to an amazing start um, where even my director of sales, he was like, what are you doing? Like, how, how, <laughs> how are you how closing? Are you closing these deals? And a lot of it was because, to what I said at the top of the show, I would use my creativity and kind of innovation as a way to package up. So I wasn't just going in and saying, hey, do you want to buy a 60 or 30 second spot? It was really figuring out what their problems were and then me coming back with a solution, but then injecting a level of creativity into it. What would you say was the most difficult lesson that you had to learn? The most difficult lesson, um, I remember about two years after me being at MS, the general manager, who was um, a female, I kept going, I would meet with her periodically, and she was like, so, you know, how are you feeling? How do you think things are going? I said, I think they're going well, right? And she she concurred, and I said, and I think it's time for maybe me to get more responsibility. Mm -hmm. She was like, yes, but you're only, I think I was probably 24 or 25 at the time. So you have time. You know, what's the rush? Uh, You have Pete, your colleague. You had to hate that. Yes. And that is. You're like, no, I earned this. I understand that other people do it longer, Mm -hmm. took longer to get there, but I, I actually earned it. Exactly. So that to me was probably the thing that really shifted my career because that engagement and that conversation that we had after that, I left and I said, okay, I'm never going to um, ascend at the rate that I think I should. So what what can I do to really create a point of differentiation about me um, when I look at my colleagues? And that's when I left radio and I went to go work at Excite because I was like, what's that? What's my white space? What don't a lot of people know about that I have an affinity for, or passion for, where I think I can take the skills that, I, that I've learned over the past two years and apply that so that it gives me kind of my competitive advantage. And, and, and during that time, it was called interactive. So I'm dating myself, not even uh, digital. digital. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were only there at Excite for a short span of time. Yes. Yeah, was so- it a bad decision ultimately or did you feel like you just needed to get out in order to be wanted by the same place that you left? So no, I, actually it was the best decision because if I never if I didn't go to Excite I never would have been in the gotten into the digital space. Maybe eventually, but it definitely fast tracked me. I mm. left 
because the folks at Emmis called me six months after I was at Excite and said, I know you left to do this digital thing. We want to launch a digital division. Would you come back and help us launch it? Uh, and I've always loved Emmis because they were um, kind of like uh, the the mom and pop of a radio. So they weren't the clear channels or any, they weren't clear channel or, or CBS. So I loved my time there. So I decided to go back and it's a good thing that I did because I believe maybe six months later, Excite folded. Wow. So I like to say I had that foresight. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also, I think, is a great lesson in that you, first of all, you got into interactive, a.k.a. digital, at a time when a lot of people weren't thinking about this. Mm -hmm. You really learned it. And and then that put you in demand to to rise within an organization that you might have remained stagnant if you hadn't learned that new skill set. Right. And I I was able to then control my path. So I didn't have to take someone else's journey because there was no rule, rule book or roadmap. So I was able to really forge what that path was going to be instead of someone dictating it to me. So really, the only person that would be at fault or 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 to blame would be me if I didn't deliver on what I what I thought I um, needed to or I could. Not everyone is comfortable with playing that role, but you obviously are. How did Russell Simmons and that relationship come to be? So it was funny. Uh, my twin sister, uh, she's a producer uh, now. She's doing branded entertainment, but back then, she actually had produced Russell on one of her shows, and um, so probably two weeks before I met him. So fast forward, a good friend of mine said Russell launched this digital business about three years ago. It wasn't doing well, and they needed to change th some things with, with the senior management, and he wondered if I would be interested in meeting with him. So I said no, you know, at this point. <laughs> you said no? Because I didn't know much about the property. Of course, I knew, I knew of Russell, but at this point, I had built... I, I was back at MSI. I'd been there now for seven years, and I'd built the interactive division that then spun off into a separate company. We had like upwards of $20 million in, in revenue. Um, every two years, if I had a business plan and a P&L that made sense, they would let me launch a different initiative. You had a good gig. I had an amazing gig. So it was like I was, I had a VC in Emmis, and they would basically fund different ideas and concepts that I had that could, that could grow the business. So I loved it. The only thing I didn't like, I was traveling incessantly and not to great places. It was, I was going to like <laughs> Indianapolis and, and places like that. Um, so my friend said, okay, if you're not looking for a move, maybe it could be one of your side hustles because I feel like my sister and I are known for our side hustles. So I was like, okay, I'll meet with them. So I go meet with Russell and his partner, and his partner's tied to all of his businesses. And we start off by Russell asking me how, um, how I thought Global Grind was, and that was the lifestyle portal, digital platform that he had. What was your first impression of Russell, by the way? I thought he had ADD. He was just all over the place. I loved his energy and passion, but he couldn't stay on one topic. So that really threw me for a loop because <laughs> I didn't know how, I didn't know when to respond and when not to because by the time I, I was ready to respond, he was on to like another topic. Uh, so that was a I, that threw me off. And um, quickly, I you know talked about different things that I would change and how I would um, maybe evolve what he had been doing. And within ten minutes of the conversation, he was like, "I want you to come work for me." 
and then pulled out it. He and his partner pulled out a napkin. They didn't put numbers down, but they said, you know, we want to give you a, a, a high salary, uh, equity. <laughs> a so, high salary. A high salary. Whatever equity. that means. Yeah. So it's just funny because usually when you when you see someone writing on a napkin, you think you're going to see Where's number. my number? Right. But it was it was basically a construct, like a package construct of you're going to get a salary, equity, and bonuses. Um, how does that sound to you? I'm like, it sounds fine, but there's really nothing for me to react to. Um, then, so you didn't take the job then. Well, at then, then obviously we got into specifics, and um, they said, "Well, think about it." And I said, "Well, at this point, I'm just not ready to make a move." Also, my big apprehension, which I told Russell, I didn't want to leave a career that I had built to go work for him on a hobby of his. And he did a lot to reassure me that it was more than just a hobby. Um, so we we continued to chat over the course of I would say maybe three. 30 to 60 days. And the piece that really um, did it was Excel Partners, which is a big VC out of the Bay Area. They were funding the the company. And Jim Breyer Mm. uh, was coming into town and they said, hey, Jim wants to meet with you. I'm like, I'll do that. He's one of the first investors in Facebook. He he had one of those early meetings with Mark Zuckerberg. Exactly. Yeah. So why not take that amazing portfolio? So I was like, Oh, if if anything, if you know, at least I'll get to I'll get to meet Jim. So met with him and he gave me kind of the rundown on his vision, why he was continuing to support the uh, the company with a with a follow up round of funding. And it was really the meeting with Jim, plus obviously the legacy of Russell that really helped me come to the decision to actually do it. So after the meeting with Jim, I accepted the position. Wow. So. I think that's a pretty fantastic story because a lot of people would hear Russell Simmons and then they would just automatically say yes without actually doing their diligence and going through it. You set yourself up for success essentially either way. You got to know a lot of different people who were involved in the system and you also essentially shared your reservations. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because I think I had to be completely transparent because what they wanted me to do was come in and really turn the business around. And that wasn't a small feat. So I wanted to be clear with them what my apprehensions were and where I thought uh, there were areas of, of big concern um, and just wanted kind of the, the truth to because, you know, it's it's smoke and mirrors when when you're going through a process like that. Yeah. And especially you're a young female. And sometimes in those circumstances, the smoke and mirrors, people think, well, we've been around the block a million times. Mm-hmm. We're bringing in this young woman. She's going to see Russell Simmons be like completely floored, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he's doing this for me yeah. and happy to take a low ball offer. And I'm not saying that he did any of that. Right. But I've seen that scenario play totally. out before many times. So I think it's good to go into it with some skepticism. Did the did the ADD thing, how did that play out when you were actually doing the job? So I got totally used to it. Um, (laughs) I got used to it. Didn't change. Just got used to it. I just became more accustomed to it. And it was good because kind of like me, like I always have a side thing that I'm working on. And it's usually having to do with uh, my job or position. But that's kind of the lab prototype mentality that I have. So I'm always testing things before I kind of introduce it to the team or my boss or whatever. So I got how Russell's mind worked. 
he would just articulate it where I would have things tucked away and just basically speak about kind of the, the matter at hand where he would basically not put know, it all out there. Yeah, he would not know how to how to kind of control his thoughts. I want to talk to you about the side hustles in a second, because I think that's a really important thing. How did you ultimately decide that you wanted to go out and found narrative and get Russell on board? I had been at Global Grind for about three and a half years. I did what I was supposed to. Within two years, made the company profitable, uh, relaunched it, and um, we had Fortune 100 brands that were engaged with us. We had built really cool technology and IP, so it was it was a win win. But there was some growth uh, limitations because we we didn't have the scale and reach that a lot of the other publishers had. Uh, So when Russell and I spoke and his partner, they came to the conclusion that they wanted to sell it, which was great because now it was in a position that people actually wanted it. And once he made that decision, he was like, "Okay, what do you want to do? And literally, I was like, "Hmm, what do I want to do next? So 24 hours later, I came back to him and I said, I want to launch an agency. And he and I had always spoken about launching an ad agency because he had one with Donnie Deutsch back in the day. And so when I went to him, I said, I want to launch an agency. He was like, awesome. Well, he didn't say awesome. He was like, great. Um, <laughs> he said, great. Yeah, he said, great. I used to have one. So, so what are you thinking? I was like, well, not like that. This agency, I want to basically redefine storytelling. He was like, well, how are you going to do that? I was like, if we can focus on data, technology, and culture as our key pillars to be able to do that. And he was like, put together the plan. I think he was kind of scratching his head. So I took two weeks, put together the business plan. Had you been thinking about it previously or was it like you you it just you had the epiphany in the moment that you had the opportunity? Yeah, Yeah. I had the epiphany. But I always knew I took a lot of my product development experience, my marketing and advertising experience, um, my operations experience, my sales experience, and just basically put it all into one plan. So I almost like to say all of my positions and jobs leading up to it kind of prepared me for for this. Uh, So I put together the plan. Uh, Russell liked it. And he said, "Okay, let's let's become partners. But uh, like any like any individual, usually when they want to invest in something, they'll go out and get private equity or VC. And this I knew of him. So I didn't want to wait or put all my eggs just in that basket. So when Russell agreed to move forward, I said, okay, great, we're, go- we're gonna move forward. And then I started doing due diligence. So I started meeting with a few angel investors, friends and family that were kind of in the business and were they connected me with people. So within a month, I came back to Russell and I said, hey, I have two investors. And he was like, you do? So I'm still running Global Grind. I'm trying to kind of um, imagine and put a proper vision together for this company. And then I brought a few investors to the table. Because you knew it would take, if if it wasn't his number one, right? so he could have taken much longer, you would have never had a chance to launch, or at least you wouldn't have launched in the year that you wanted to Absolutely. launch Absolutely. So again, I needed to control my, my path. So when I went back to him, I said, okay, he... Um, Make it easy. Exactly. So that it, package it all up. So there's no, there are no questions. But the thing is, now I'm faced with, and I'd never been faced with this, all right, what type, how much equity do I give someone if they're lending me his name and some money and a level of expertise? Because Russell has that anchor in, in branding and marketing. And then how much do I give? Obviously, capital is key, so I need that. So I grappled with that a bit. And in the end, I went back to Russell and said, 
you know, what you're asking for and what this person is asking for is, is similar, but the capital is what I need right now. So doing that, it's going to make me a min- uh, minority mm. um, owner. And that, to me, was not an option. So he and I went back and forth, and he came back to me about a week later, and he was like, you know what? I'm all in. You don't need another investor. I'll put it all in. So he put, a, he put in the first round of capital. Wow. Which was huge, because uh, that I didn't think uh, would happen. Um, and then we launched it in April of 2013. And now you've worked with all of these big names. And I think, you know, when you're an outsider looking in, any outsider looking in, I remember as a kid, I would look at my job, the one that I have today, and have zero clue about how to even get here. Like, what's even the first step? When you go out and chase a Steph Curry, for example, or a Michael Strahan, what's the first step to getting the big fish to be on board with you? So I think with Steph, it was through Under Armour because we had been working with Under Armour. And then with Michael, it was through JCPenney. But then I happened to be friends with Michael and and his partner, Constance. So it made it easier to kind of cement that relationship. But I think overall, when it comes to going after that big fish, it's really figuring out how you can align with their goals and objectives and show them the value that you can deliver and how you can do it differently. Because I think... People don't buy don't buy you for kind of what you do. They buy you for your why. So if I can come up with kind of a reason why what I think I can bring and kind of what my value proposition is, it makes it easier for, for a brand to, to be able to sign on and say, yeah, I want to work with you. Your business is all about getting your message out in creative and new ways. And for anyone out there who's struggling with that, trying to get their own message out, what's your advice? I think you have to disrupt, but not for the sake of disruption. It's figuring out how you don't keep repeating what's been done. Because if you think about it, you don't wake up in the morning and say, yesterday was an amazing day. I'm going to do everything I did yesterday so I can have the same day today. That just makes no sense. And yet so many businesses do that. Right. But then you just stay in the same place and people get really complacent. So then this is where I say, okay, then you have to go to 2.0 and 2.0 is not repeating, but playing. So you have to press that play button so that it gives you the opportunity to solve these problems in in new and different ways. And to me, to be able to do that, you need to create a story that's really compelling. And how do you bring that story to life? Usually when people get to understand things, they experience it. So how do you do that when you're articulating kind of what you can bring to the table? How do you stay creative? What are some of the influences that help you keep curious and creative? I think travel, uh, being exposed to different groups of people um, and connections. You know, so when I even, you know, me here chatting with you, I'll something might might trigger something based on based on what you say. Um, You're always thinking. It's always always, in the back of your mind. Always, always. Like, I. How do you record your thoughts? Do you do you write them down? Do you put them on your iPhone? Evernote. So Evernote's my BFF. I use that too. But I only sleep like three, four hours a night. What? Because I'm constantly. Because think. And now I'm looking at you, and it's like, come on, (laughs) come on. I guess not fair. It's 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 just something because I think um, when you're running a day to day business. So I'm so in the trenches, kind of 9 to 8 p.m. So it's after when I can really take a step back and figure out, all right, where will narrative be in two years or what's next, where I can really look at the vision and kind of what the next chapter is going to be, because I'm not really able to do that during the day. I love your Instagram account. I follow it for um, 
for fashion inspiration. I know that's not what the account is about, but you and your sister are always dressed to the nines. So I look at your, I look at that and I look at the life that you have and it seems like you've at least somehow managed to, and I say this in the most positive way, blur the lines between work and play and that you're kind of playing while you work as much as you're working. Totally. And I love what I do. So that's such a big piece of it. And if you think about it, Marketing, advertising, business strategy, that's all part of of what we do. So everyone needs that. So it's just figuring out who who that is and if there's the right connection in terms of what they need and what we can bring. So to me, anyone I meet could be a potential um, client. And I think I've balanced, figured out the way to balance kind of work hard, play hard by doing like extended long weekends and, and um uh, making sure that I don't, I'm not working basically to live. So when I leave the office at eight or nine o'clock, usually I have a dinner or an event. Sometimes I want to go home and relax, but I kind of push through it. And um, that social time is a good outlet for me. And then also another good connection point. Was there ever a point along the way where you wondered, what am I doing and why am I doing this and what is it all going to lead to? And how did you push through that moment? I have those moments often, but they don't <laughs> last that long. I think um, being an entrepreneur has definitely crystallized a lot for me. I've gotten to know myself more than I ever thought I could um, and more than any other job has really um, been able to to do. So, So for me, it's just knowing what my North Star is. So even though things might not be going in the direction that I think, because I think that's another big thing with having your own business, just when I think I have it all under control, another lever breaks or there's another fire that I have to put out. So for me, it's knowing and staying anchored in here's the North Star and really setting clear goals and objectives around the vision and knowing that, okay, day by day, I'm going to continue to chip away at it and everything's not going to come in one. So I look at wins and losses kind of in in the same way I, I celebrate but not too much because I know there's still more to go and then losses I take note of them and learn from it but then keep going we all get bad advice what's the worst advice you got along the way so probably a few things the one is um don't be in such a rush the the thing that that um the general manager at the radio station gave me because um that's just absolutely bizarre. If 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 you have a vision and you have a skill set, of course you you can go you know go at it, take it at your own at your own pace. The other thing is concentrate on one thing at a time. I remember one of my old bosses said that, and I was thinking to myself, how then it's that's just so one dimensional, and then you never get to see. You never. I always play this game with myself. What if? What if you had these resources, or what if this could come into play? what then could be a possible outcome. And that to me is the mentality of how I think we stay ahead of the curve and really razor sharp on what the new technology is and what are cool and interesting ways to engage people. And that's because I don't pay attention or focus on just one thing. I always have my hands in a lot of um, side hustles. Side hustles are key. How do the side hustles work? So side hustles, two ways. So it could be a side hustle that's not related to your job. So based on a passion or an interest that you have. And my sister and I have launched clothing lines. We've um, done lapel pins, like you name it. 
Um, so sometimes it's related to that. But I think when it's related to your job, it's coming up with ideas and then forming hypotheses and saying, okay, if you think this is, is a cool idea and here's the hypotheses, how do you start testing it while you're doing your day job and your, and your day-to-day um, duties? And then once you feel as though you've, you've hit a point where you've realized kind of, or had the result that you were looking for, then you bring it out and share it with the team because then you have proof points. There's more thinking that went into it. That's, I think, a big part of my success, like how I've built my career. Also, it helps. I'm a big believer in uh, revenue diversification, so not having all your revenue come from one place because if that if you lose that, then you're kind of, you know, out of luck. So how do you have different places where you can monetize? And the only way to do that is if you start side hustling. So I guess a more appropriate name might be you prototype ideas or you prototype products and concepts. Um, And that, to me, is one of the big differentiators with Narrative 2 because we're an ad agency, but we operate like an innovation lab. And that's because we don't wait for an RFP, a request for a proposal. If we come up with an idea and we think it makes sense, we bring it to a brand. That's what we did with Samsung. Um, Also with our processes and our approach. So if we want to get a different result creatively, we can't follow the same steps that all other agencies follow or that creatives have been following for 20 years. We have to change that up. So we have a lot of unique tools and methodologies that we use. And then with the creative it's usually injecting some sort of culture or technology component that is really anchored in a human experience that makes it um, really high impact. This conversation was high impact for me. <laughs> Trisha Clarkstone, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's someone you think we should have on the show, let me know. You can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis, and of course, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Bancardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.